Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show. Thanks for joining us to lead, learn, and laugh. Learn market knowledge and best practices to lead your company's success. And laugh, I believe we have to have some fun along the way, right? Well, hello, I'm Michael Bull, your host to the world of commercial real estate. If you have any questions or comments related to today's show or about any commercial real estate related endeavors, you're invited to call us. Our number is 888-612-SHOW. You can also reach us at info at CREshow.com. You can also find all our social media connections at the show website, commercialrealestateshow.com. Well, today we have a special show for you. We're going to look at the current state of commercial real estate what's shaping the market, and what we might expect for property level performance and capital markets moving forward. We have a special guest in the studio today, Ryan Severino with Reese. Ryan is the the Senior Economist and Associate Director of Research in the Research and Economics Department at Reese, the team responsible for the firm's market forecasting, valuation, and portfolio analytics services. Additionally, Ryan currently serves as the adjunct professor of finance and economics at Columbia University and New York University, teaching courses such as urban economics, portfolio and risk management, and macroeconomics. Ryan Severino, welcome back to Commercial Real Estate Show. Thanks, Michael. It's uh, it's nice to be in studio instead of just kind of a faceless voice on the radio for that, a change. That's great. You know, you're usually calling from New York, which we appreciate. It's glad to see you here in uh, Studio One in Atlanta, enjoying our beautiful weather today. Well, Ryan, I'd like to start with your view of the of the current market and, and, if you will, some projections for each of the sectors in the U.S. And let's start with a look at the uh, office market. How is it performing overall? You know, I'd say the office market is, is in recovery mode, but it's a very tepid pace of improvement still in the office market. You know, we're seeing vacancy declines, although vacancy is still at an elevated level, about 17%. We are seeing both asking and effective rents growing, but as you can imagine, with, uh, with the vacancy rate at such an elevated level, we're not seeing a material improvement in rental rates just yet. And I think a lot of that has to do with really what's going on in the labor market. Until we start to see uh, stronger job growth out of the labor market, job growth coming from some of the real office using sectors of the economy, uh, we're going to be kind of in this pattern for a while. And I think probably through the end of the year, because we don't expect to see uh, much acceleration in the economy through the balance of 2013, I wouldn't expect that to change. But, you know, give it a, a year or two, 2014 into 2015, with economic growth accelerating. I think you'll see stronger demand uh, on the part of users of office space. I think you'll start to see net absorption ramp up a little bit, maybe a little bit more acceleration uh, in rental rates. And then we'll start to see that vacancy rate come down and eventually get to the point where I think landlords will have a little bit more leverage in the market. But for now, I would say the recovery in the office market is is really largely reflective of, of what we're seeing in the overall economy, for better or worse. Okay. And what about capital markets? What do you see out there for office cap rates and demand for uh, investment? You know, of course, obviously, differs on a on a metro level basis but i would say overall you know we're still seeing cap rates in you know somewhere in the kind of the mid single digits range seven percent give or take and i'd say uh, over the last couple of years we've definitely seen a downward trend uh, in office cap rates i think what, what's really going on behind the scenes though is we are seeing uh, still a very strong selection bias phenomenon in the market because fundamentals outside of a, a core group of markets uh, the technology oriented markets the energy oriented markets haven't really improved all that much so really good quality deals, especially in those tech or energy oriented markets, are trading obviously below the average nationally. But if you get away from those really high quality assets and those select few markets, uh, we're just not seeing a lot of demand for for a lot of office deals right now. So I would say transaction volume is slowly 
clawing its way back. But cap rates are still uh, they're down relative to where they were before, uh, obviously, the economy turned around. But it's it's very much a, a selection bias phenomenon right now. Okay. And one time when I spoke with you, you talked about more investors uh, looking at secondary markets and, and, and maybe away from some of the core assets in the, in the capital markets. Do you still see that happening? In office, to an extent, I would mm-hmm. say it's a little more prevalent in apartment right now because I think mm-hmm. that, uh, as we'll discuss, is still kind of the most favored asset class. I think in office, people are, are, are at least they're testing the waters a little bit because mm-hmm. pricing in those uh, that small number of really good markets is has gotten a, a bit expensive, a bit pricey, and I don't think the environment is such outside of select submarkets, even within uh, really good metro areas, that too many people feel confident about doing any kind of development activity these days. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly there's some always some development activity in the market, but uh, relative to say apartment, we're still not seeing that much of it. So I think anybody looking for yield is probably going a little bit further afield, maybe not necessarily way down into the secondary or tertiary markets just yet, uh, but they're going outside of the, you know, the real core gateway institutional markets. They're looking beyond the New Yorks and Washingtons, Boston, San Francisco's of the world mm-hmm. to still major markets, but not just those core few gateway markets necessarily. Right. Well, let's talk about the industrial market. What do you see there, Ryan? You know, I, I would say industrial is kind of uh, on par with what we're seeing in office. It's mm-hmm. sort of, it, it kind of has a, a Goldilocks temperament to it right now. Mm-hmm. It's not as hot as the apartment market. It's not as cold as, say, <laughs> Retail, uh, we are seeing vacancy declines, you know, fairly mm-hmm. consistently for both the warehouse distribution subsector and the flex R&D subsector. Uh, obviously, warehouse distribution uh, is a little bit tighter. It's about 200 basis points tighter, about 11.8% vacancy rate, whereas uh, flex R&D, we're still looking at about a 13.8% vacancy rate. I think what's really interesting about the industrial sector right now is in those two uh, separate subsectors, there are very key drivers that uh, that you can point to where you do see obvious uh, changes these days. On the one hand, for flex R&D, uh, the markets that have done better, the markets where we have seen job creation from small to medium-sized firms come back a little bit uh, more aggressively because they tend to be the users of that flex R&D space. You don't see a lot of big Fortune 500 caliber type companies leasing a lot of flex R&D space. I think mm-hmm. on the warehouse distribution side, what's really interesting is that a lot of the demand these days is being driven by e-commerce, if not just the big uh, internet-only firms like the Amazons of the world, but even bricks-and-mortar retailers that are trying to have that omni-channel distribution strategy where they're selling via the internet, via, via their bricks-and-mortar stores and an app on a smartphone or something like that. Uh, they've been showing a very specific uh, preference for a type of building, and that type of building tends to be new, big, modern, advanced buildings with more dock doors, greater clear heights, uh, cross docks, truck courts with bigger turning uh, radii for the trucks to come in and out, uh, stronger floors to support heavier loads. And so those type of buildings are holding up really well. If anything, uh, development for those buildings is becoming uh, more and more difficult. And you're, you're seeing people interested in developing those buildings going further and further away from you know, core, more established markets by uh, you know, main distribution arteries or intermodal distribution hubs uh, adjacent to ports and a little bit further away to secure a parcel of land where they can build a building that meets those specifications. Because it's not as if the uh, buildings that don't meet those standards are just unpalatable. They're, to an extent, they're functionally obsolete. And I think that's, uh, that's an interesting change. And so a lot of the vacancy improvement that we've seen has really been driven by those higher quality buildings that these, these tenants really prefer. I think the rest of the inventory is still uh, kind of struggling a little bit as it, it mm-hmm. searches for demand right mm-hmm. now. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, 
my son and I went shopping on the internet last night. I think we brought bought four items, and they're all shipping within two days at no extra cost. So they're getting things to us very quickly now, aren't they? they that, that is the strategy, really. Yeah. And I think you're seeing the Amazons of the world is really mm-hmm. leading the charge in this respect. Uh, their philosophy is uh, we have to distribute to such a wide uh, array of, of customers. Not that mm-hmm. uh, populations aren't concentrated anymore, but it's a little more dispersed than it used to be, whereas most retail would be delivered to a retail center, and then the customers would come into the stores to buy it. Now it's it's significantly more dispersed than that. So location, not that it doesn't matter, but I wouldn't say it's of, uh, for a lot of these users, not of paramount importance anymore. I mean, I can tell you up in the New York area where I'm from, we're starting to see users go uh, further and further away from the core New York metro area, not even just into, say, eastern Pennsylvania looking for uh, development sites, but even as far as central Pennsylvania, the Harrisburg area looking for development sites. And that's a, that's a good drive from, from a New York City. That's a good three, four hours at least uh, from New York City. And so uh, they, they're really focusing on this delivery uh, in, in a short period of time, but that, that in, in a way that kind of benefits them because then they don't need to be uh, immediately adjacent to the, the strongest concentration of population necessarily. I guess that's a lot cheaper than uh, leasing retail space. Too, yeah, absolutely, right? absolutely. And then I can always shop uh, more in my pajamas as well, which is <laughs> kind of weird. I don't know why I said that one, right? But uh, we're short on the break, but what's that doing to uh, cap rates in the industrial market? You know, I'd say cap rates, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of, of uh, office, definitely a little bit lower for uh, warehouse distribution than Flex R&D, because Flex R&D has that kind of, you know, hybrid office slash showroom component to it, as, as well as the warehouse space in the back. But again, sort of mid to high, you know, single digit caps for, for overall. And then, mm-hmm. you know, the good markets, especially the core uh, port markets, the New York's, the Los Angeles, Long Beach markets like that. We're definitely, even the intermodal distribution markets, uh, the Chicago's, Dallas's, we're seeing uh, a premium relative to the overall country. In terms of uh, the flex R&D space, I'd say there's California and there's kind of everything else. And so for now, uh, we're not seeing, I would say, as dispersed uh, a recovery in flex R&D as we're seeing in in warehouse distribution just yet. Okay, we're going to take a short break. We're going to have more on the retail market and some of the factors affecting commercial real estate. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by your friends at Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com or call 800-408-BULL. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. If you'd like to know the absolute latest on any commercial real estate-related topics, check out our on-demand show podcast. Some available topics include the Fed's view on commercial real estate, a show on personal business and real estate tax credits you don't want to miss, and a show on group investing. And that show includes details on the ability for sponsors to advertise for accredited investors. You can access the shows anytime on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. Just visit iTunes or the show website, commercialrealestateshow.com. Today our show is called Reese on Real Estate. 
We're talking with Ryan Severino, senior economist with Reese. And Ryan, I'd like to ask you about the retail market. Mm. I mean, the, has that been the trailing sector, and how is uh, real estate uh, retail faring? You know, it has been the trailing mm. sector, and I think if you look at the the numbers in aggregate, it kind of belies what's really going on uh, behind the scenes. So if you look at, at any of the aggregate statistics, if you look at vacancy rates, if you look at rents, it appears as if retail is not faring so well. But I think what's really going on is that retail is a, is a tale of many different subsectors, uh, and, and some of which I would say need to even be parsed out by who the clients are, who the consumers are. So any of the sectors that tend to have a, a primary focus on the more uh, wealthy, affluent, uh, high-income earning type consumers have been the outperformers. Uh, and, you know, I, 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 I joke around a little bit, but they are a little bit more uh, insulated, uh, if not immune, from the vagaries of the economy. So, uh, so I, I, I'm often fond of saying, if you're an investment banker and your bonus gets cut from $900,000 to $700,000, you you buy one less Ferrari that year, but you don't <laughs> stop going to the mall on the weekends. And right. so, I mean, that's really what's happened. If you look at those high-quality, high-caliber Class A malls mm -hmm. with you know anchors like Nordstrom's and, and Neiman Marcus and inline tenants like Armani and Polo and Gucci and Versace and Tiffany, those centers have held up really well. And the landlords that own those centers, predominantly the REITs, uh, they, they know that the pendulum has clearly swung back in their favor. So any of those centers, you'll see low vacancy rates, you'll see high rents, uh, you'll see landlords with a lot of leverage when it comes to uh, negotiating. If you get away from those sectors to the class, you know, B-plus and lower caliber malls, we just haven't seen demand really bounce back because most consumers in the economy aren't in a position where they can still discretionary spend, you know, party like it's 1999, if you will. Uh, and so they've been a little more circumspect about their discretionary spending. And so uh, with, with incomes, you know, not growing all that much and with the job market still struggling, they haven't really been going out uh, and doing a lot of discretionary spending. So vacancy rates are significantly higher for those lower caliber uh, sectors of retail. Rents are lower. Rent growth is, is you know, it, in some markets for those centers still negative, if not barely positive. And so I would say if you look at the aggregate statistics, retail looks pretty ugly. But if you if you really parse it out by subsector and, and by who the clientele is, you start to see a more varied picture than I think the overall data uh, presents. Yeah, that's interesting how bifurcated that that market is. And you mentioned it, the, the trailing sector. So when you look at the rental rates, for example, of, of how high they were uh, before, pre-recession and the rental rates overall it's those b and c properties i guess that are bringing down the average but they're still that average is still quite a bit lower than it was pre-recession right absolutely i mean yeah. we're we're basically you know mm -hmm. if you want to think about it in, in terms of duration mm -hmm. uh to get to about the same rental rates that we're at today you'd have to go back about five years or so. So mm -hmm. we've effectively gone sideways in the overall retail market mm -hmm. over the last five years. And so I think that's that's a pretty telling statistic that we've barely seen uh, you know, any appreciable rent growth over a five-year interval. That That's pretty unusual for retail, which I think mm -hmm. most people think of as being a relatively stable property type, you know, low, uh, you know, mid to, to high single-digit vacancies at the most, mm -hmm. uh, fairly stable rent growth. You know, the American consumer always spends money, so the demand side is always uh, fairly robust. But that, you know, clearly wasn't the case uh, during this last downturn. Yeah, I know about those consumers. I have a wife and a daughter. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about the multifamily market, Ryan. What do you see there, and what do you expect moving forward? You know, multifamily, you know, continues to be uh, 
the star performer of commercial real estate. You know, vacancies nationally are about 4.3%, which is the lowest that we've seen in 12 years, really since, uh, you know, the wake of the dot-com implosion. And I would argue that vacancy rates were artificially low then. Uh, I, I think what's interesting about it is that, you know, we're finally starting to see the beginning of this um, deluge might be a little bit uh, of hyperbole, but we are starting to see uh, what looks like the front end of construction ramp up a bit. And that's going to be a different dynamic in the market than we've seen over the last three and a half years when the market's been recovering at a you know, very strong pace. Uh, we haven't had much in the way of new construction. And so that's why you've seen rapidly compressing vacancy rates uh, and rents expanding. I think going forward, the balance of this year uh, into next year, you are going to see that change. We are going to see, and we're already seeing an increase in construction activity. And that is the one variable uh, where there is a, a market difference relative to what we saw during the downturn and then the recovery period. And so I don't think you're going to see demand pull back significantly, but you are going to see greater competition uh, from new supply going forward the next, say, six to 18 months uh, than we saw in the prior three and a half years. And that is going to cause vacancy, not necessarily to uh, to explode, but will probably drift higher over the medium term, the next four to five years, even as rents continue to grow, uh, there'll just be more absolute competition in the market from, from new properties that's going to put, uh, put a floor underneath how far vacancy can really fall. But you say four or five years, so do you expect that there's going to be plenty of demand based on, on demographics and maybe a change in perspective from, uh, of the U.S. consumer about buying homes and apartments? So is, is there still plenty of demand overall for this high level of new construction that we're starting to see? I think the demand side is not the side of the equation that I worry about. It's definitely more on the supply side. If you look at the underlying demographic factors, they're all very strong. The number of 20 to, to 30, 34-year-olds in the economy continues to grow. Uh, household formation is starting to ramp up and mm -hmm. is not projected to really uh, peak until the latter half of this decade. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and if you think about, you know, the kind of the prototypical renter, you know, single 20 to 30-year-old, you know, just getting out of school is not really established in their career, especially given uh, the job market that they've uh, kind of found themselves entering. Uh, they're not really in a position to be homeowners, even if, if it were relatively affordable, the, especially with uh, tighter underwriting standards for resi mortgages, which I don't see relaxing all that much over the next uh, you know, short to medium term, three, four, five years. And so I think all of that bodes well for demand. I think the question is, uh, in, as an industry, do we overbuild? And unfortunately, as an industry, we certainly have uh, an inherent propensity to overbuild when the market is good. So I, I'm, I'm definitely worried about the supply side a little bit, but the demand side, I think, uh, should remain strong for the foreseeable future. Okay. And I want to ask you about cap rates. If you're driving your car, hold on to your steering wheel, though. These <laughs> <laughs> are some low cap rates. We're short on the break here, but what do you see there for apartments? Yeah, I would say you know, easily the lowest of the major sectors. Average, you're looking you know, nationally in the 5 to 6% range, but in the, the, you know, the high-quality markets, where there's a lot of demand, the New York, some of the California markets, the tech energy markets, you know, we're seeing deals in New York all off as low as, you know, two, two and a half, three percent. So uh, there's no shortage of, uh, apparently there's no shortage of people willing to pay that low cap rates for really good deals right now. Well, it's interesting. I asked a, uh, an investor who paid a low cap rate in New York and I said, well, where's your upside? And he said, well, Michael, there, there's no competition. The, these rents are going to increase. We feel like that's where we're going to get our big return. You agree with that? You know, some of those cap rates mm -hmm. make for very, 
aggressive underwriting in order to get those deals to work. What I would mm -hmm. say is there are some investors who are out there, uh, I, I met a, some, uh, some of them maybe a month or so ago, their philosophy is they would rather take a bet on New York with really low cap rates and have longer holding periods than either have to take the risk for development deals or take a risk in a non-New York caliber market. And so well, it's, a, it's that, a different philosophy. Well, that's interesting. Well, we're going to hear more on Reese on Real Estate. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by France Media. France Media provides exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com or call 404-832-8262. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. You may be listening to the show anywhere from Miami to Seattle today. The show has been on broadcast around the world for three years on iTunes, multiple websites, and is aired on 12 radio stations across the U.S. We'd like to say hello to our listeners in San Francisco on the Bay Area's business leader, AM 1220 KDOW. Well, today our show is called Reese on Real Estate. We're talking with Ryan Severino, senior economist with Reese. And Ryan, I like that you guys track self-storage. I think it's an interesting sector. How is the self-storage market performing? You know, I'd say it's uh, it's recovering, you know, kind of like we're seeing in some of the other major sectors. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we're seeing vacancies compressed. We're seeing rent start to grow. Uh, I think as you've started to see demand for apartments ramp up, obviously apartments can be somewhat limited uh, in terms of storage space. Uh, we have seen uh, demand bounce back for, for self-storage as well. And I think uh, a lot of that has to do with the fact that there clearly has been this market preference for rental housing during the recovery as opposed to uh, for sale housing, where clearly if you have an attic or a basement, there's uh, obviously more storage space. And I think that's been one of the real catalysts for the self-storage sector uh, up to this point. As, as the job market has slowly come back, as the apartment sectors come roaring back, a lot of people who, who had a lot of... Uh, things, just various things, have realized that they needed uh, more space than, uh, than their, their apartment could afford them. And I think it's been a really good, uh, really good boon for uh, demand for the self-storage sector. So people didn't sell all their things, right, in the downturn? <laughs> no, I mean, you know, that's the, it's the one thing that I find fascinating, and I'm sure you I'm guilty stuff, of this. Right? Yeah, I'm, I'm guilty of this, too, as much as the next person. But yeah. there's this documented, what they call the endowment effect, by mm. which people will put greater value on things that they own relative to what it would cost them to reacquire it in the market. So, mm -hmm. you know, the, the story that I always tell about uh, self-storage is that, you know, I, anecdotally, I knew somebody who had a self-storage unit and they kept a whole bunch of things in there that they inherited from their grandmother and her grandmother had, had passed away. Uh, some of them didn't even work, but this person refused to part with them mm -hmm. because it belonged to their grandmother. And so yeah. they just kept renting the unit and leaving the goods in there because they couldn't get rid of their grandmother's lamp or their grandmother's rocking chair or right. her blanket or whatever it was. And so it was easier for this person, uh, you know, probably physically and certainly psychologically, to pay the rental fee every month to keep those goods Absolutely. rather than part with them. Absolutely. And, you know, that self-storage market got hit pretty hard in the recession so so you say it's rebounding kind of slowly i guess what do you see for cap rates 
in the self-storage market? You know, they're, they're, they probably are at a, a bit of a premium to where we're seeing apartments. You know, mm -hmm. so if apartments are in the five to six range, that's probably a, mm -hmm. you know, two to 300 basis point premium, mm -hmm. you know, depending upon the market that you're looking at, uh, which, you know, I could argue that, you know, demand with apartments tends to correlate pretty well. So if that's the case, you know, the whole you know, barrier to entry problem notwithstanding, it mm -hmm. might seem like an interesting proposition for people who are looking for uh, an alternative outside the four or five major food groups. And so uh, I think uh, you have, again, you have an endowment effect, you have strong resurgent demand with the apartment sector, uh, and it, you know, it, it does trade at a bit of a premium. So for some people, it's certainly an interesting proposition. Okay. And Ron, you guys at Reese do a great job tracking and, and forecasting markets for and the various factors influencing performance in capital markets. I'd like to get your view on some of these factors that could affect the market moving forward. Let's start with Obamacare. What could that do, do to the commercial real estate market or maybe the office market in particular? You know, I think the thing that's interesting about Obamacare is if you, you know, if you listen to the media and you read stories, I think everybody anecdotally has heard about some somebody or some organization that has been uh, either limiting the number of people uh, that they've been hiring or they've been capping uh, the number of full-time workers because of, of the threshold. I, I think what's interesting is if you, if you look at the data, it, it tells a different story, but it, it, it's almost kind of misleading. If you look at the number of people who are working part-time for non-economic reasons, so family reasons, something personal, uh, it's actually trending upward. If you look at the number of people who are working for purely economic reasons, which would include uh, people making decisions based on Obamacare, it's actually starting to trend downward. But I think what is, is not being captured in that data and that you are seeing in the economy these days is that Obamacare adds an element of uncertainty. And I don't like uncertainty in the economy because uncertainty tends to be a paralyzing force. I think the fact that you know, they've pushed off some parts of the law in terms of you know, when they're going to implement it, whether or not they're going to, to actually change any of the stipulations about the number of full-time workers or how many hours actually constitutes a full-time worker. I think any of that coupled with uncertainty over fiscal policy, monetary policy, I think all of those things are really bad for commercial real estate, especially office, because it, it tends to be a paralyzing force. And you tend to see people uh, not actually go out and make decisions because they don't want to make the wrong decision. So uh, whether you like Obamacare or you don't like Obamacare, in my mind, what I would really like to see is them just settle on everything so that the market knows where it stands and then they can make decisions going forward. Right. Good, bad, or indifferent. You like to know what's going on. Right. right? Exactly. Even if you yeah. hate, hate the law and you don't like what it's going to do to your business, at least you can make decisions about the future once you know for certain where you stand. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if it was repealed, which I guess is not going to happen now, but if it was, what that would do to jobs. All right, we'll take a short break here. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back with more Reese on Real Estate. Does your company provide professional services to the commercial real estate industry? The Commercial Real Estate Show is an excellent way to reach your target audience. For advertising options, visit CommercialRealEstateShow.com or call 888-612-SHOW. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. If you're listening to the show online or on one of the 12 radio stations around the country, be sure to check out our YouTube channel. 
Yes, you can watch the commercial real estate show. We're on TV. Well, we're on video. There are three sections there. The first section is called market updates. The second section features industry intel. And the third section features available properties. Just visit uh, YouTube and search for the phrase commercial real estate show. Well, today our show is called Reese on Real Estate. We have Ryan Severino, senior economist with Reese. And Ryan, corporate users are tending to use less square footage per employee in their office space. It's, it's been the talk around the country for a while. Is it really happening, and how is that affecting commercial real estate or, or the office market? How is it affecting the office market? I would say yes, it is absolutely happening, mm-hmm. and I would say it's happening in places that one might not uh, necessarily mm-hmm. expect. I think mm-hmm. the stereotype was you know, middle to back office type work in secondary or tertiary markets, especially out in the suburbs, but I can tell you uh, I've seen firsthand uh, I, I won't name the organizations, but major uh, professional services, financial services organizations, and major East Coast office markets in the CBDs. I've even gone in and seen. Uh, I've seen them implementing uh, this new initiative, which uh, reduces the square footage per person. I think you know, my office put me in the closet, and I thought they just didn't <laughs> like me. I didn't. <laughs> no, you, you're not all that far from the truth. I, I will tell you, in one of these organizations, uh, the the workspace, I, I hesitate to even call it a cubicle because mm-hmm. it, it doesn't even constitute <laughs> a, a cubicle, I don't think, anymore, uh, was so small that there wasn't a room, uh, room for a chair for a guest. And so what they did was they put uh, the filing cabinets on rollers so they could slide them out from underneath uh, underneath the desk and then put a mat on it so that somebody could sit down. (laughs) But the problem with that is the quote-unquote walls in these uh, working spaces are so low that there's no back support. You can't lean backward. You would probably flip over the wall if that were the case. So uh, this is definitely being implemented, I think, as organizations realize that uh, they can use it to reduce their their real estate costs. And I think, you know, if you believe any of the, the stereotyping about Gen Y and younger workers and how they kind of prefer this you know they'd rather go in and not necessarily have a dedicated space but log into a phone and you know bring their computer or their tablet into a docking station and log in that way uh, you know I, I i tend to not try to stereotype generations but there is certainly some truth to that i think what's interesting is i think slowly and this is i would say we're really just at the beginning of this but there is starting to be a little bit of a backlash against it certainly among older workers in the economy, partially because they find it difficult to concentrate because there's there's more noise due to the other workers and due to the electronics than people thought initially. Uh, often it's difficult to have a conversation with a few people around your work area because you, you, know, you run the risk of uh, perturbing other people while you're having the conversation. And then the other thing I think organizations are going to realize if they haven't realized this yet, and they will certainly in the, some of the colder climates come winter, it's a lot easier to transfer illnesses in an open air space than in somewhat more secluded cubicles and offices. And, and I think as anybody knows, uh, illness has a, can have a serious impact uh, on productivity and the kind of uh, work that gets done during those winter months. And so uh, it's, it's, it's not a panacea. It's, it's, it's not as if it's all Shangri-La, wave a magic wand, and, and it's, it's better. Companies might save money in the process, but I think they do that at the risk of you know, potentially upsetting or alienating some of their workers and then running the risk of uh, illness maybe being transferred a little more quickly during those colder months than they probably were, uh, probably were, were expecting to occur. That's interesting. I didn't think of that. And uh, so what do you think that's going to do to 
the office market moving forward? Do you think that's going to continue to happen, uh, less square footage per employee? And how do you think that's going to affect the office market? I think until the backlash is strong enough, you will see this trend continue. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it is starting to spread, not just from secondary tertiary markets, back office type work, suburban into some of the more uh, you know, the core CBD uh, parts of, of the office market. And I think that's one of the things that's kind of uh, pulling against the recovery in the office market right now is not just that we aren't seeing, you know, a, a strong enough number of jobs being created or, or the right caliber of jobs being created, you know, those higher end service sector jobs, but the fact that organizations have been focused on reducing that real estate cost and shrinking mm -hmm. their square footage per person. So I think it'll, it will only go so far. There are some organizations where you probably won't be able to do that. Uh, anything that, you know, you have real high caliber, you know, very well compensated employees, especially if they tend to be uh, revenue generators, rainmakers, they'll probably push back on that a little yeah. bit. So, you know, in any of the real high, you know, certain uh, high caliber professions in New York and Washington, Chicago, Boston, LA, San Francisco, places like that, you'll see some pushback and hesitancy. But uh, by and large, the, you know, this is the trend that's going on in the industry. And like I said, if, I, if I'm seeing it in some of those, you know, white collar financial and professional services firms, you know, CBDs on the East Coast, uh, I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that uh, we need to seriously think about going forward. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Well, one of the factors helping commercial real estate performance has been the lack of new construction. And we're fairly short on the break here. But where are construction levels compared to pre-recession? You know, uh, for every sector except apartment, we're still below where we were uh, pre-recession. I mean, and construction levels were not robust before the recession because uh, land and construction materials and labor were so expensive, especially with the developing world growing and competing for those natural resources. The one exception to that is apartment, where I can honestly say I think this year will be about on par with, say, the 15-year historical average for construction activity. And I think next year we will actually be above that 15 or so year historical average. So that's the one exception. I think outside of apartment, you're still seeing a very uh, benign construction environment right now. And that should continue to help commercial real estate keep uh, absorption high and vacancy low, shouldn't it? Absolutely. Up. I think, you know, uh, not that I'm rooting against construction per se, because yeah. I think you know, it correlates well with the economy recovering. But, you know, if we're rooting for vacancy compression and rent growth, it's a little easier to get those things when the economy maybe hopefully shifts into a little bit higher gear over the next year or two, if we don't have uh, the, the construction inflow to contend with as well. Right, right. Well, that's interesting. Well, stay tuned. We're going to have more Reese on real estate. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by your friends at Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com or call 800-408-BULL. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Today, our show is called Reese on Real Estate, and we were talking with Ryan Severino, senior economist with Reese. And Ryan, let's talk about the influence of rising interest rates. We all believe they're they're going to increase. How might interest rates increasing affect cap rates? You know, I think the real issue is the timing and the magnitude of it. Mm -hmm. uh, the question is whether or not the improvement in the economy that that translates ultimately improvement in, in fundamentals, which can obviously raise real estate values. How quickly does that occur relative to how quickly 
interest rates rise. Because if interest rates start rising faster than the improvement of the economy is translating into improvement in fundamentals, improvement in NOIs, and improvement in values, that could have an upward uh, effect on, on cap rates and, and a downward effect on valuation. So as long as interest rates aren't rising in a precipitous manner, if the, if, you know, if the market doesn't overreact, if the Fed is good about a very slow measured pace of interest rate increases when they ultimately start raising interest rates, I think we're okay. But I, I worry about the scenario where interest rates, for whatever reason, rise in a rather expeditious manner and it starts to outstrip the improvement in fundamentals. That, that's the scenario that I'm, I'm more worried about, even if I don't think it's the most plausible scenario right now. Right. Yeah, and we had the uh, Brian Bailey from the Fed on the show a couple of weeks ago, and it seemed like the indication was there that they weren't going to increase interest rates faster uh, than the economy should suggest. But, uh, well, let's talk about the, the Fed uh, and tapering of, of QE, because that's something they're they're obviously going to have to do at some point, And they talked about starting doing that soon. With tapering of QE, how could that affect commercial real estate? You know, I think the one thing that uh, that QE could do, and I think mm-hmm. if you if you you know recall what happened earlier in the year when Chairman Bernanke just even alluded to the fact that they might that they might start uh, tapering a little bit and the market didn't respond so well. I think what they, they probably need to do a little bit better job of is clarifying that tapering QE3 doesn't specifically equate to tightening. And I think that's what the market is seeing right now. So I think a lot of it depends upon how they they convey this message and the market receives it. Because even if they start to taper, that's still technically a loosening of policy as they keep buying more and more you know, treasuries and, and, and mortgage securities. So I think the real question is, how does the market perceive this? If the market perceives it as tightening, which I would say is probably not the right way to perceive it, you might see further increases in interest rates. But if the market perceives it as you know just a slowdown of, of further loosening, then it might not have a, too much of a pronounced increase on interest rates. And again, that's the one thing that I worry about if interest rates start to rise quickly. And so I think they probably maybe muddled the message a little bit earlier mm-hmm. this year, maybe didn't didn't convey it in the way that they'd hoped to. Mm-hmm. And I think quietly they would probably concede that point. I think that's the big issue. Okay. And talking about uh, the Fed and, and the government, how does federal budget fighting and defic- deficit spending and raising the debt ceiling and the argument there, how does that affect the economy and commercial real estate? You know, that that bothers me because mm-hmm. anytime you get any kind of disagreement over that, it mm-hmm. could create problems. So mm-hmm. if they can't raise the debt ceiling and they have to decide what doesn't get paid, that will ripple through the economy. If they can't uh, come up with another Band-Aid budget for the next year like we've been using for at least, you know, the last couple of years. Uh, again, you know, what doesn't get funded or, you know, what what doesn't get paid in a way? Because odds are they, they'll, they'll keep paying uh, the debt service because they don't want to rile the markets up too much. But if, if it's a short-term phenomenon, it could be a speed bump. If it's a longer-term phenomenon, and given the attitude in Washington these days, I don't, I don't project that, but I don't think anybody knows. Uh, that's the kind of thing that could throw some turmoil uh, into the economy. So it would be nice if everybody in Washington, you know, played a little bit nicer in the sandbox. But it's it, it's hard to envision them really coming to some kind of compromise unless they're they're almost forced to do so. Okay, well we're out of time, Ryan. Thanks for joining us today. We sure appreciate it. No, thanks for having me in. This was great. Well, I have a question for you as a listener. Can you join us next week? Well, I hope so. We'll talk about office tenant strategies. We'll have three of the top office tenant reps in the country, featuring a New York broker from JLL, a Chicago broker from Colliers, and a D.C. broker from Cressa. You don't want to miss that. I mean, when we talked about the office market today, companies are using less square footage per employee. 
Um, they are doing a lot of things different in their office space. We'll find a lot about that next week, so be sure and join us. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Michael Bull. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by your friends at Bull Realty, France Media, Atlanta Office Liquidators, and Wiseman, Noack, Curry, and Wilco. For more information about these companies or to access additional show podcasts, videos, or blogs, visit commercialrealestateshow.com.